Welcome to another episode of the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, and I'm Anne Louise Gittleman. I'm an award-winning author of over 37 books on health and healing, including the new bestseller, Radical Longevity. I'm so grateful to have all of you listening today. Today, I have Mr. Homeopathy, who is a very admired and quite legendary figure in the world of health and healing. So let's welcome Dana Allman. Dana, tell us a little bit about your stellar and legendary career. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Well, hi, everyone out there. This is Dana Ullman from Berkeley, California, also from homeopathic.com. So the right person got that website just to let you know. Mm. So uh, I got involved in homeopathy when I was an undergraduate at UC Berkeley. Uh, I come from a medical family. My father was a pediatrician and an allergist and a professor emeritus at UCLA. An allergy, of course, is that medical specialty that draws from homeopathy. They use small, though not super small, doses of substances that might cause an allergy in order to build up resistance to it. Uh, And um, so I did my undergraduate work at Berkeley. I did my graduate work in public health at UC Berkeley. And in the process, I've written 10 books on the subject, uh, two of which include a foreword by the physician to of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Oh my goodness. And as you may know out there, uh, the royal family has been under homeopathic treatment since the 1830s. So homeopathy is not some type of new age medicine unless you wanna consider the Queen of England to be a new age woman. Um, And uh, besides writing 10 books on homeopathy, I've helped bring into print and co-publish 40 books on homeopathy uh, by my colleagues, and I co-published those books with a company called North Atlantic Books, which are distributed to the universe through Random House, as well as through my own company, homeopathic.com. So, you know, my website is a real useful resource. There's a hundred free articles or more. Uh, there's homeopathic books, tapes, medicine, software, uh, e-courses, and then, of course, I see patients on a regular basis. In fact, right now, I'm in between patients to do this interview, um, and I see most of my patients via Zoom or Skype or the telephone. Wow, and he's considered one of the greats out there, everybody. I've known of Dana Allman for decades. So my question to you is, is homeopathy as viable now as it was 100 years ago? Is it too subtle a medicine or can we use it today to ward off virus, pandemics, and all the other assaults that are hitting us? Homeopathy is as modern, if not futuristic as ever. Yeah, I, I call homeopathy nanopharmacology because we use these very small nano size and very safe doses of medicines. And homeopathy was way ahead of its time in the 1800s and it's still ahead of its time in this 21st century. And most people don't know it, but homeopathy became most popular in America and Europe during the 19th century, primarily as a result of the incredible results that homeopathy and our patients received during various infectious disease epidemics. And to be honest, as serious as this COVID pandemic is, there were much more serious pandemics 
in the 19th century. I'm talking about cholera, yellow fever, scarlet fever, uh, typhoid fever. Um, these were killing much larger numbers of people and even healthy people, not, not, not like this one, which is primarily killing uh, people that are 80 years or 70 years and older and who have multiple morbidities. Uh, now, mind you, the additional younger people that it's going after, I think, is the result of them getting poor medical treatment. Specifically, one of the things that's important to know about infectious disease and viral diseases in particular is, is that one of the ways the body uses its incredible defenses to fight viral infections is with a fever. And yet Americans have been spreading misinformation all over the world that somehow fevers are bad for you and that you should suppress a fever. So in fact, believe it or not, during the 1918 flu pandemic, mm. the AMA recommended that people take literally 25 aspirin tablets a day. Oh my gosh. A day to suppress the fever. Now in 1917, the year before the 1918 flu, aspirin went off patent, which made it an even cheaper drug. And because it was thought to be a wonder drug, I mean, and it is in many ways, in the early 20th century, it was found to stop pain, not all pain, but many types of pain. And that's wonderful. However, it has a dark side. Now, one of the other things that people have used it for is to suppress a fever. And that's the worst use for it. <laughs> because, you know, yes, it's, it may be important to suppress a fever that's 103.5 or any prolonged fever that's, you know, going on for, you know, five or more days. Yes, but the average fever doesn't need to be suppressed. In fact, that is the way your body is learning whatever microbial agent is attacking it so that it can defend itself. And then not only now, but for the future. And you know, the number one reason that people were dying during the 1918 flu pandemic was they were having bleeding in their lungs. Now, what drug do we know causes hemorrhaging of various sorts? Aspirin. Aspirin, aspirin, and aspirin. And to this day, the AMA has never apologized to the American public for this iatrogenic, meaning doctor-induced death rate. That's and, that is phenomenally interesting. Yes. So what you're, what you're just saying, just in case my listeners missed that, is that the enormous death rate of the 1918 flu epidemic was probably due to the medication that people were taking, which was in the form of aspirin. That's right. And this isn't simply my thinking. This has been uh, published research in a major medical journal. And now, mind you, uh, I wrote about this about three years ago for the, uh, at Mercola.com. Joe Mercola has appreciated my work so much that I'm one of the few people that he has allowed to publish articles at his fabulous website. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've written five articles for them. Now, because Google blocks any references to uh, Mercola.com to find my articles, you have to go to Mercola.com and then, then do a search under my name, Dana Olin. But um, 
and and I also wrote about this recently for Bobby Kennedy's website. Yay. So yay, yay. One of my other really fabulous heroes. Heroes. Hero, hero, hero. Um and um and what so, is his and tell everybody what his website is. It's children's well, well, his children's health defense. But in particular, they have a chapter uh, from California. And I wrote my, this article for, so if you go to their website, which is childrenshealthdefense.com, but if you type the word CA or the letter CA period before children's health defense, you'll get to the California uh, Health Defense's newsletter. And then you do a search under my name and you'll find that article. So then I have a question for you. Right. Why isn't homeopathic medicine more popular in this country? Can you get into the politics of homeopathic medicine? Sure, sure, absolutely. And this will get into the story of how the AMA got rich and powerful. Yes. And it's an amazing, simple story that, that is often omitted from the history books. But in 1899, the AMA wasn't doing well. It, although its numbers were much larger than the homeopathic organization of that time, it still represented a very small percentage of, of American doctors. And then the new president in 1899 had a brilliant idea. He was not just the president of the organization, he became the editor of the journal of the AMA. And he created the AMA um, uh, seal of approval of drugs. Mm -hmm. Now, to get the AMA seal of approval of drugs, you did not have to do any research. You did not have to prove safety. You did not have to prove efficacy. But you had to do two things. One, which is a good thing. One of the things you had to do is you had to say what was in your medicine. Because in the 19th century, many doctors and many companies were selling drugs with secret formulas. <laughs> and that's a problem. That is a problem. Big so problem. Th this was good. But then the second requirement tells you really what was really going on. To get the AMA seal of approval, you had to not only say what was in the drug, but you had to agree to advertise in every national, regional, and local AMA publication. In other words, you had to give the AMA a buku amount of bucks. This is a clever way to, to give them money and that grew their, their, uh, their financial coffers and enabled them to be more and more powerful. Then in, in 1925, when this president of the AMA was booted out of the organization because he was determined to be a total shyster and a crook, his protege took over for the next 25 years and he came up with the AMA seal of approval on foods. Mm. And so they did the same thing with foods. And in fact, this president of the AMA and the editor of JAMA was the one that counseled tobacco companies of, of how to advertise to doctors. Oh my gosh. This idea that said, you know, nine out of 10 doctors recommend lucky strikes, <laughs> you know? And then when he was finally booted out of the AMA because he would never allow the Journal of the AMA to publish any negative study on tobacco. Finally, he was booted out in 1949. And in, literally within six months, 
the Journal of the AMA began finally publishing evidence about the dangers of tobacco. And what did this editor uh, and president of the AMA do? Of course, he became a lobbyist for the tobacco industry. Oh my goodness. He, he, knew, he knew what side his butter was being, his bread was being buttered on. And so the way the AMA got rich and powerful is through a bribery scandal of getting money from drug companies, getting money from um, food companies under the idea of advertisement, but it was really a, a, a clever way of you getting the seal of approval from the AMA by giving them big, big amounts of money. How interesting. And it's such a pity because homeopathy became popular, like I said, in the 19th century due to the infectious disease epidemics. Because if you think about it, there's two ways to treat people with infectious disease. One, the conventional method is to attack the microbe. But the more safer and the more effective way is to do something giving small doses of natural substances that would strengthen the person's immune and defense system. And that's what homeopathic medicines do. And, and in fact, during those 19th century epidemics, uh, homeopathy was a lot easier to practice because when people got scarlet fever or yellow fever or typhoid fever, there was often a real common group of symptoms, which would then suggest that during scarlet fever, the most common remedy was belladonna. Now, when I say the most common remedy, that means it is the most common remedy, but it wasn't the only remedy. It really depends upon the person's symptoms. So if you happen to have the symptoms that resemble the toxicology of belladonna, which is a high fever, it's super red in lips and red in mucous membranes, it's dilated pupils, it's uh, restlessness at night and wild nightmare dreams, because Belladonna itself, you know, is a hallucinogen. And if you match the symptoms of what belladonna would cause, then homeopathic belladonna has a profound ability to heal people. Profound. So interesting. Yeah. I've, I've heard that there were many homeopathic colleges back in the 1900s. <laughs> yeah. Would you tell us what they were back in the, because there are very few today. Yes. Yeah, you may have heard of a couple of them. Boston University, for instance, was a homeopathic medical school. Uh, uh, New York Medical College used to be called New York Homeopathic Medical College. Interesting. In Philadelphia, there's Hahnemann Medical College, named after the very founder of homeopathy. Samuel Hahnemann. University of Michigan had both an, a, a conventional medical school and a homeopathic medical school. Ohio State, Ohio State, University of Minnesota, and even the radical University of Iowa was <laughs> started as a homeopathic medical school. So God bless those Midwesterners. Yeah, they knew where homey, uh, what real healing was about. And what about today, Dr. No, there, there, there's no medical schools that are homeopathic in America. So, so tell me what changed in the 1900s. Well, you know, what happened was, is this one of homeopathy's biggest advocates in the early uh, 20th century was J.D. Rockefeller. Interesting. During the last 50 years of his life, and he, he, he died at the ripe young age of 98, 
He outlived his homeopath who died really earlier at 93. Mm. Um, but he promised to give half of his money to homeopathic medical schools and institutions. Mm, I never and, knew that. And as a matter of fact, however, his financial advisor promised that he was doing that, but never gave a penny. So during the first three decades of the 20th century, the Rockefeller Foundation gave around $450 million and not a single penny went to homeopathic schools. Now, $450 million in 1900 and 1920 money is the equivalent of $450 billion. Unbelievable. So that fed the monster, not the healing schools. And so, you know, when I think of the AMA, it's the American Monster Association. Oh, um, my God. You know, I mean, and, and once again, you know, my parents taught me that when I make a mistake, I have to apologize. And I find that when any, whenever anyone apologizes to me for a mistake they made to me or that affected me, I actually get a, give the a person a higher regard. Yes. Uh, and, and it is time that the AMA begin to apologize for the death and destruction that it did during the 1918 flu. And sadly, that it is still doing today. So who is teaching homeopathy? Where does the doctor go to learn the art of homeopathy? Well, uh, you know, the, the bottom line is there are different schools and training programs. You know, some of them are in class and some of them are distance learning. And my website at homeopathic.com, you know, provides some distance learning type of courses. And the other service that we provide is that whenever anyone wants a list of present day schools and training programs, we provide that list for free, but we have one requirement. You have to order a book from us at the same time. So mind you, if you're really interested in homeopathy professionally, you're going to want to buy more than one book. Uh, and our website is very useful. Now to 99% of the other people out there that may not want to be a professional homeopath, my newest big project, which I completed several years ago, is I created an e-course called Learning How to Use a Homeopathic Medicine Kit. Wonderful. And any mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, person will benefit from learning how to use this 50 to 100 key remedies. And so what I've done is I created a detailed ebook and then I created, believe it or not, 80, 15 minute or so videos. Now, mind you, you, don't, you, you can choose to buy the whole e-course of 80 videos though you can choose also to dumb it down to 60, 40, 25, or even 15. But all of them come with the same 600 page ebook, which not only teaches you which remedies to use. And I, I have to be clear that if you're looking in the chapter on flu, if you're looking in the chapter on headaches, if you're looking in the chapter on um, arthritis, uh, there's not one remedy, there's numerous remedies. And I then describe some of the body-mind symptomology of the person that will benefit from that remedy. So you read down the different lists and you look for the one that matches your symptoms. 
But the other thing about this ebook, which is exceptional and different than any other book or ebook, is, is that I provide descriptions of ref and references to the 400 plus clinical studies that have been published in peer review medical journals. So that if anyone out there says, well, there's no research on homeopathy, well, there's no research if you don't open your eyes. Uh, I mean, and I'm talking about research that's been published in uh, the, the journal called Pediatrics or the journal um, called Rheumatology or the journal called Cancer or the journal called The Lancet or the British Medical Journal. Um, and there've been a lot of other studies in uh, other conventional journals as well as various alternative journals. So, you know, what's nice about having this ebook is you can read the chapter on ADD and ADHD, for instance. You can print it out and give it to your friend who has an ADD or ADHD kid. And the mother and father can read the chapter and make reference to the different studies, including one in the European Journal of Pediatrics. Uh, and then you can read something about the typologies, but in about 15% of the diseases that I cover in this ebook, I don't recommend that people self-treat for more serious and complex diseases like ADD or ADHD. And certainly for heart disease or cancer, I don't give any remedies. Um, and the same thing would be said about COVID. I wouldn't give any specific remedies. I recommend that you go to a professional homeopath for that. Very, very wise. But I've read that there's such a thing as constitutional remedies. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? It's very fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, this is something that's totally foreign to the conventional medical model. Mm -hmm. But in homeopathy, after we uh, ask about the person's genetic history in terms of what diseases run in the family, and we get into detail about whatever main complaint they have, and if they have, let's say, migraines, it's not just a diagnosis that tells us anything. That doesn't. We need to know more details about your species of migraine headache. What, you know, where in your head is it does it hurt? What, what types of things make it better or worse? And that could be you know, time of day, it could be temperature or weather, it could be the position of the body or motion, but it can be certain foods or drinks, it could be certain emotions or mental states or certain stresses or certain exposures. And you know, I call homeopathy a little bit like that old TV show Dragnet. <laughs> where the detective wanted to know who, what, why, where, when. In other words, as much detail, and just like Sherlock Holmes, we try and look for a person and whatever symptoms are really unusual, because sometimes those unusual and very characteristic symptoms give the homeopath insight of what unusual remedy that person may need. And I can will tell you this, that in my practice, I don't cure everyone, not by far. But every single day of my practice, I see another miracle, and usually multiple times in the day. Wonderful. Uh, and, and when I mean a miracle, it doesn't necessarily mean the person is totally cured, because curing is a process. 
you know, there's different layers of the onion that we describe in homeopathy is as you release that migraine headache, that then you, you then work on other aspects of whatever illness or limitation of your body and mind that you have. But, you know, there's so much that homeopathy, homeopathic medicines can do. It still blows my mind after practicing homeopathy since literally 1975. My goodness. So do you see certain patterns of health right now with reference to people's immunity? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the bottom line is, is that because so much of conventional medicine has been so effective at suppressing disease, in other words, uh, that skin rash that you have May, you know, may have used a corticosteroid. And so it pushes the disease from the third lung, which is, which is your skin. Your skin is a third lung. And if you have a rash and you put a topical on the rash, it pushes it into the body and inevitably the person often develops a condition like asthma. And, uh, and then, you know, that is treated sometimes and even often with uh, corticosteroids, which suppress the immune system. And then at a young age, people develop different cardiovascular problems or neurological problems or ultimately immunological problems. And all these autoimmune diseases, when, the, when most people's immune system should be functioning in a way that defend ourselves, by suppressing the disease so many times, it confuses our immune system and it has our immune system begin to attack ourselves. Mm. And homeopathy is one way out of that. Um, and I do wanna be clear, you know, I treat people all the time that are on conventional medicine. So it's not as though you have to choose between one or the other. So there's no contraindication there. Well, I won't say there's no contraindication, you know, and because I'm not a medical doctor, I specifically never tell a person to stop using a conventional medicine or to reduce it. But I give them advice about what that conventional medicine is doing to their body. I let them know what side effects it's known to have. And I then encourage them to enter a dialogue with their doctor or with their partner or with themselves to determine what they should do about that. Uh, but I myself don't give directives of reducing specific conventional medicines because one of the problems with conventional medicines is they, they mask our symptoms. Uh, so that the painkiller may work wonderfully well. And isn't that a wonderful godsend? God bless it. Mm. At the same time, be, because it disguises symptoms, uh, the homeopath doesn't always know which remedy the person needs because the, the, the symptoms are behind this mask. So if you were to give us just a taste of some key homeopathic medicines for the 21st century, what would be your top three? Wow. <laughs> Easy question for you. Easy question. Well, you know, one is good old Nux Vomica. Uh, Nux Vomica, doesn't that sound wonderfully poisonous? Yes, indeed. Well, it is. Uh, it has strychnine in it. Um, and it's actually made from a tree that's called the poison nut tree. And 
th this medicine is taken from one of the nuts. And it is one of our best liver cleansers that we use in homeopathy. Interesting. Um, it, it is the remedy that we give to people that have a hangover. Um, and uh, the leading physician of the early 20th century was a doctor who was the head of Johns Hopkins Medical School. And then he got bumped upstairs to be the head of this other university called Oxford in England. Mm -hmm. And Sir William Osler's favorite, he, had, he said he had two favorite drugs, Nux Vomica and Hope. Interesting. And mind you, um, he, he, he actually spoke well of homeopathy, even though he never really practiced it. Um, and um, uh, he, uh, so Nux Vomica is good also for people who've taken many either conventional drugs or recreational drugs that may have hurt their liver. So interesting. This is so key for people because I've written yeah. about the liver for so many years and just never <laughs> thought about it. But what, but what potency? Aren't there different potencies? Well, yeah, there are. And, and when, when, you, when, you're a, when you're not a professional, I don't recommend that you use anything higher than the 30th potency. Oh, uh, we we can homeopathy use the 200th potency and the 1M, which stands for 1,000. M is a Roman numeral for 1,000. We use 10M and 50M and even 100 or CM. But, but for the general public and what you'll see in the various health food stores is usually 6, 12, or 30. And 30 is what you might work with. Now, one of the other books that's a good resource for people out there is my, my book called Everybody's Guide to Homeopathic Medicines which has been the most popular guidebook that people have used ever since it was published in 1984. Mm. So we've updated it four times. And one of the things that it does is it does teach people how to use some of the common remedies for acute problems. In other words, there's nothing in there on diabetes or heart disease or cancer, but there are on you know, first aid and headaches and sore throats and colds and coughs and allergies and so many, you know, you know, menstrual complaints, vaginitis, you know, so many different acute ailments. But one of the other great things about this book is, is that I co-wrote it with a physician colleague and we give careful guidelines as to when a person's symptom is worthy of medical attention. And so we give gradations. Sometimes a person's symptom is serious enough that they should go to an ER right now. And another level, they don't need to go to an ER right now, but they should go to some urgent care facility within the next 24 hours. And then there's a third level of symptom. Well, you don't need to go right now. You don't even need to go today, but you should just get it checked out soon. And with that guideline, people can save a lot of time and a lot of money going to doctors when it isn't always necessary. Excellent. Besides Nux Vomica, what are the other two? Well, one of the other ones is good old Arnica. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people out there have heard of Arnica. It's the number one medicine we use in sports medicine. 
Uh, it's a number one medicine that we use in uh, pre and post surgery. And let me talk about both. So uh, Arnica is a great remedy first for shock and trauma of injury. So if and ever you get seriously injured, you know, you break, uh, you break something or a severe sprain or you get a hit on the head, um, your, your body experiences shock. And if you've ever taken a red course course, a red <laughs> cross course, oh. <laughs> a, red course a red course course, Thank a red you. cross course, um, you know, they teach you to treat a person for shock first. You have them lie down, you have them raise their legs up. So the blood begins to go back into their head so that you don't lose brain cells. Well, good old homeopathic Arnica will also help you not lose as many brain cells uh, from the shock of injury. But then after the shock of injury is done, it's a leading remedy for injuries to soft tissue. So if you need, if you have a sprain or strain or a bruise, Arnica will help help your body heal. And even if there's a lot of blood that has been either lost or that is coagulated under the skin, that black and blue bruising, Arnica will help reabsorb that blood very, very well. So helpful. Now, does it matter whether this is in a, a little milk sugar tablet or in liquid? Well, no, it doesn't matter if it's in liquid or tablet, though Arnica is one of the remedies that they use in herbal form, in undiluted form, and they put it in an ointment or a gel. And so you rub it on that sprain or strain, or you rub it on that part of your body that has a black and blue bruising. You, you should not put Arnica topically, however, on any open wound. For that, you would use calendula. And calendula is the good old marigold that beautiful orange flower and that orange color, you know, lets you know that it's full of carotenoids. And carotenoids are that, that ingredient within carrots that is so good for the skin. So it, it helps to heal the skin. And because calendula is high in iodine, it has some bacterial static effects to keep infections down to a minimum. Fascinating. So we've got Nux Vomica, Arnica, the number third one. Well, uh, there's so many different ones to think of. Um, but this is so very helpful because people never would have known about Nux Vomica if it weren't for you. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I, I well, I'll, I'll tell you one of my own personal favorites. Thank you. And that is homeopathic Roos Tox spelled R-H-U-S, second word is T-O-X. And this is homeopathic doses of poison ivy. I love it. <laughs> so right away, if you know something about homeopathy, you use homeopathic doses of a substance based on what it causes. So what does poison oak cause and poison ivy? These skin awful rashes. skin rashes. So one, you can use it for those skin rashes, yes. But uh, the, the trick to poison uh, or rust tox is, is that one of the other symptoms that it causes toxicologically is, is it has a very strong influence on, on your connective tissue. And it, what happens is it creates what's called the rusty gate syndrome 
where you feel like a really old man or old woman and you're really stiff. So whether you got, have a sprain or strain and you're stiff from that, or, or you have uh, the flu where you have body aches, where you're stiff with that, the unique feature of this is, is that you're stiff only when you initially begin to move. Then as you move around, you become like the rusty gate. You're mm -hmm. rusty at first, and then you loosen up. Mm -hmm. And as a man that's approaching 70 years of age myself, um, you know, I have found that whenever I overdo things, I wake up the next morning as that with that rusty gate. So one, I've learned to use homeopathic doses of rust tox. And uh, because I know something about homeopathy, when I, although I earlier benefited from the 30C potency, now I use the 1M or 10M of rust tox and I get even noticeably more relief. And as long as you don't take these medicines very often, um, I mean, they can be wonderfully helpful because there's such a small dose. Generally, the worst thing that happens is nothing. You didn't pick the right remedy. And so you're as sick as you were before. This is so helpful and so excellent. Now, as we close out our magnificent interview with you, can you tell me some of the notables that really swear by homeopathy? I know Sir Sir. Um, yeah, Paul McCartney is one of them. Tina Turner, as I recall, is another. Sure, 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 sure. Well, yeah, I did write a, an amazing book that everyone out there would love. Love it. And there's a wow experience on every page. And it's a, a book called The Homeopathic Revolution, Why Famous People and Cultural Heroes Chose Homeopathy. Mm -hmm. And I've uncovered so many amazing stories from 11 American presidents and then heads of state of England, of France, of India, of Mexico. Um, uh, I, I uncovered the story of Charles Darwin and J.D. Rockefeller, of seven different popes, and then leaders of virtually every religion from the Russian Orthodoxy to various Jewish rabbis to famous Muslim clerics and virtually every Indian guru. Oh, how Literally fascinating. Every Indian guru. Fascinating. And, and then literary great sports superstars, uh, women's rights leaders, uh, musicians from Beethoven and Chopin to, um, as you mentioned, Tina Turner and Cher. Uh, I, I should share. I could just uh, drop a name, Cher. <laughs> <laughs> and Sir Paul so, McCartney, Charles and Darwin. Paul McCartney and uh, Roger Daltrey of The Who and Pete Townsend of The Who. And um, But you can get these books and more at my website at homeopathic.com. You can learn about my e-course at homeopathic.com. Though there's another website that gives even more detail about the e-course. And that's at homeopathicfamilymedicine.com. But, uh, you know, just check that out. Um, this is a uh, homeopathy, uh, I, like I'd say, is a type of nanomedicine. We use super small doses of natural medicines to strengthen a person's immune and defense system. And if you can't learn to figure out which remedy you need, here's where you can go to a professional homeopath, whether it be me or any member of the North American Society of Homeopaths, or any member of the American Institute of Homeopathy, 
There are medical doctors, there's naturopaths, there's chiropractors, there's veterinarians, there's even some dentists that you integrate homeopathy into their practice. Oh, how wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest, Dana Ullman. Any other parting words for my listeners? Well, you know, I hope that, that these words and these insights, you know, provide a seed that you can fertilize and grow a magnificent forest to make your life and your family's life healthier and happier. And let us say amen. But I want to thank I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I'm very grateful for our sponsors. Unikey Health Systems, my go-to resource for the highest quality third-party tested supplements, unikeyhealth.com, and our newest sponsor, c-shealth.com, which is the most activated sulforaphane on the market, which is also good, like Nux Vomica, for the liver. So thank you once again, my beloved listeners. Tune in next time, please, for another scintillating episode of First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Until then, be healthy, be be happy, be safe. And please don't forget to subscribe and like First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Thank you so very much.